Hi, I'm Sean L. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic, found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Colin Mockery is one of the most successful and best-known improv comedians in the world, having performed on several hundred episodes of Whose Line Is It Anyway since 1991. First broadcast in the UK, then later here in America on ABC, ABC Family, and since 2013 on The CW. Born in Scotland and raised in Canada, Mockery learned his theatre and comedy skills at Vancouver Theatre Sports in Second City, Toronto. His face is famous in Canada, having appeared in countless TV commercials and series over the years. In 2022, Mockery celebrates 20 years of touring North America in a two-man improv production with his Who's Line co-star, Brad Sherwood. He also tours with hypnotist Asad Meki in a show called Hyprov. Mockery sat down with me to talk about his career as well as his most recent appearance on Amazon Prime Video's Last One Laughing, where he competed against some of Canada's other great comedy stars. And he had me laughing quite a lot. If you like this conversation, please consider subscribing to my Substack called Piffany at piffany.substack.com so you can read bonus commentary on this episode as well as more comedy news and insights. Thanks in advance, and now that that's out of the way, let's get to it! So, Colin Mockery, last things first, congratulations. Uh, spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't watched Last One Laugh in Canada, but congratulations. Thank you. And why hasn't everyone watched it by now? It's been out now for, for days. Come on. <laughs> There's my agent calling. All the offers are coming in now that uh, LOL is finished. <laughs> Was there any doubt that you would be triumphant in this? I mean... Oh, yes. I think there was, <laughs> there was a lot of doubt. I mean, all of those people, I mean, the beauty of this was anyone could go at any time because, you know, to be focused for six hours on not laughing, it's a long time and you can lose focus so easily. Like the, the time I, I got my yellow card, for some reason I thought, oh, we're having lunch. So the game doesn't count. <laughs> Well, it's like, nobody said that. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So uh, um, I don't think anyone walked in feeling very confident. I thought, uh, I thought Tom and Dave were going to be the ones to beat uh, just because they're old, jaded, and know everything. Right, but they don't have the, the improv skills that you have. And essentially, this is a long, short-form improv game. It, it, yes, it is kind of. Uh, but I mean, Tom is a, a master of understatement or over understatement. I don't even know how to <laughs> right. describe what he does, but he can keep a straight face and he's just so unpredictable. There's never a point where you go, oh, I know what he's going to do next. Nothing. Anything he could do could be comic fodder for the next five minutes. <laughs> and the, the charity that you won the money for, that has a lot of personal meaning for you and your, and your wife, right? Yeah, it's Rainbow Camp. Um, it's a camp for LGBTQ plus uh, the community. Uh, we got involved maybe six years ago, um, shortly after our daughter had come out as trans. And uh, we went down there and did a show that was a fundraiser and met the two uh, founders, uh, Chris and Harry, who were just the loveliest people. And it just seemed like um, a 
a great place, a great place for these kids to go where they're not being judged, where they have uh, mentors, where they have programs they can take, where they can spend a summer just having fun, having fun. So let's go back to when you were a teenager. Did you feel like you were being judged? Uh, probably. I didn't. Uh, well, maybe not that much. I, I mean, I was very and I, I'm, I still am but to a lesser extent because I, you know, I'm married and I have to do things. But I was um, very quiet. I was a bookworm. Uh, I kept to myself. So I, I think I flew under a lot of people's uh, radar. I was very popular with my friends. But outside of that, I don't think I, I caused any ripples. So did improv and specifically, I guess, theater sports in Vancouver, did that really kind of unlock something in you that you didn't know was there? Yeah, I mean, it started with theater. Uh, because I was so shy, a friend of mine uh, dared me to go out for the school play, which I got. And then I got my first laugh. And that I still remember that moment as the moment that just totally changed my life. I thought, oh, I, I want this all the time. <laughs> it was like I had a hit of heroin and I was looking for my next fix. <laughs> so um, I was mostly into sciences at that point. So I switched over to theater. And then I was in theater school when I saw the demonstration of theater sports because it had just started. I was there at the beginning. And um, I thought, oh, this looks cool and got involved. And I just thought, well, this will be something that's just fun to do on the weekends. We're hanging out with my friends and uh, making stuff up. It's never going to be a career. How could it be? Nobody even knows what it is. Right. And uh, thanks to Who's Line, that sort of uh, changed everything. Right, but there was this. There were several years, maybe a decade, even where you were performing improv that wasn't on TV, and yeah, had to explain became, it to people. Oh, constantly explaining because nobody they go, oh, so it's stand up? No, it's not stand up. Stand up is actually um, a craft. <laughs> we're more of an art, I guess. Uh, where we just, um, I mean. I, I don't understand stand-ups, why people do it. I have nothing but the deepest respect for them because I, I, I truly think it's the hardest of all the comedic arts. You know, with you know, um, improv, the audience has sort of a vested interest because they're giving us suggestions for scenes, so they kind of want it to succeed. But um, my thing always was, if I'm going to die on stage, I'm going with as many friends as I can. <laughs> I, I just have to to say right now before we go any further, like this is a real treat for me to be able to talk to you. I, you know, I'm a journalist by trade, but my my world started to encompass comedy uh, in the mid '90s when I was living in Seattle. I ended up joining. Uh, there were three different improv troops in Seattle in the mid '90s, and the one I joined was called. Uh, get ready for this. It was called Improvis Comicus. Oh. And, we had we had Wednesday nights at the Comedy Underground, which was the comedy club in town. But it was all short form. It was all games, a lot of interacting with the audience. And um, I didn't even know that there were other forms of improv, that there was like long form improv. I just thought this was the be all end all. And having you on TV with Whose Line like made it seem like, oh, this is a thing. This could be a thing. Yeah. I mean, when I started, it was just, it was only short form. And it really wasn't until kind of much later that long form uh, came in. 
And, you know, I, I was living in Vancouver at that point. So we would go down to Seattle and have, you know, theater sports tournaments with the Seattle people. And it was always uh, fun. And I always felt short form gets short shrift, so to speak, because um, they think, well, it's just gaming. And it's like, yeah, <laughs> nobody's saying uh, different, but it's not easy to do. I mean, we had a lot of great improvisers who tried out for Who's Line, but it wasn't their thing just because, especially on Who's Line, everything has to be short and jokey and sticky. And that kind of goes against a lot of the basic uh, purest principles of improv. But it, it really is hard to do. And with, I mean, long form also can be difficult, but you also have more time to you know, build your character, build the situation. You can take your time. You can work more with your partner. So um, I, I, I think anyone who goes into any kind of improv, I, I, I salute them because it's not the easiest thing in the world. A lot of people are terrified of it. And I think once they get in there, they find, why was I terrified of this? It's just kind of fun and it's actually quite easy <laughs> well it's i mean it's easy for you to say because you make it look easy oh yeah no that's true <laughs> well i mean part of it is a lot of people um it's interesting because i i'm working with a hypnotist we have a show uh, called hip prof where he hypnotizes people and i improvise with them and we've had some amazing improvisers who not their main job. We had one the other day, he works in the government, uh, shuffling papers, and he was our star. Hmm. And it's because what happens when you're hypnotized, the part of your brain that deals with self-criticism, uh, that activity kind of disappears. And it's the same with improv. I had to, uh, I was part of a test study to see what happens to the brain when you improvise. So I was in an MRI for an hour and a half improvising. It's just, I will. I can't recommend to anyone. <laughs> it's pretty horrible. Yeah, but if, you, the, uh, if you say, "Can I get a location?" Please don't say MRI. An MRI. <laughs> but uh, the same thing. The the self critical part of the brain. That activity sort of goes away, and that's the reason a lot of people won't improvise because they stop themselves. All the things we do in improv are things we're not really comfortable with in life, listening to people saying yes to their ideas and trying to make them look good. Yeah. It's the, the secret, the secret to improv really is letting go of your inhibitions and just going with your gut instinct of what comes next. Yeah. Right. Just, and, yeah. Just there's nothing. And it took me a, a while um, to do it, but now I can walk on stage with truly nothing going on in my mind, where it's just, I'm whatever. It's, we're getting something from the audience. I'll be getting something from the, whoever I'm working with, and then we'll just do it. Um, and it, I mean, that took a long time to be relaxed enough and to trust myself enough to just do that. So you're doing it for a few years in Vancouver, just you and your pals and whoever comes in, was it, was it, tourists or who who came to the shows um well because it was fairly new um we were so i mean we were very lucky when we were starting out there was this theater that was so perfect for improv it was the the stage uh, on the ground and then the audience sort of rose above it uh on three corners oh wow and the um artistic director there said you know what uh, after our main show on the weekends you can have shows like from uh, 10 on. Uh, 
So there was a McDonald's next door and we would run into the McDonald's and go, Hey, come see our show. Oh, what's it about? We don't know yet. You have to shout things at us. Come on. <laughs> and then um, within the year, it was the big thing in Vancouver. There were lineups around the blocks. People were talking about it. And it was, um, I'm guessing, well, I'm thinking it was probably mostly younger people, college students, but, but we did have a, uh, a wide range. I think the older people was mostly our parents and the like, but then it, it started to grow and we had a really wide demographic. Right. The theater sports in Seattle also benefited from a great location because it was right at Pike Place Market, which is the, the place where they throw the fish and all of that stuff. Yeah. And uh, of course, when I was there, they also benefited. Uh, Joel McHale was part of their crew. Oh, at that time, perfect. So, yeah, but at, but at the time when you're just in Vancouver, dragging people in from McDonald's, the idea that you could be doing improv for another forty years, let alone thirty of those years on television, yeah, that had to seem like a pipe dream, or not even. Oh, was not it, even about, it, it was not considered. It, it was just, no, this is something I'm doing on the weekends with friends. What, what can, and we had tried uh, maybe four or five years in when we were doing really well, we, we started doing um, improvised plays and productions. We did an improvised Hamlet and they thought, Hey, why don't we try a television show? And sometimes I wonder, I really hope they destroyed whatever <laughs> that was filmed on at that point. <laughs> Because I don't think it worked. And it was all the best improvisers in, um, in, in the group, but it just uh, died horribly. <laughs> it just didn't work for whatever reason. It took a British guy to figure it out. Right. But in that meantime, I know Vancouver now has a great reputation for being kind of Hollywood North. Yeah. Um, although Toronto might be in the running for that also. Yeah, they're both. Yeah, it seems to alternate year to year on who's. Uh, I think. I think Vancouver does more television, and maybe Toronto does slightly more movies. But in the eighties, when you were you know still on the come up, as it were, was there a sense that you could parlay the improv into bit roles in TV shows and movies? Or nope. The only thing we had at that point. I think we're the three Canadian stations. Uh, I mean, and we could, I mean, obviously we could see American television, but nobody was filming up there. Mm -hmm. Um, The first part I got in a movie, Ryan Stiles and I got cast as extras in a movie called Space Hunter Adventures in the Forbidden Zone. Oh, of course. Space Hunter. It was a 3D movie (laughs) that they were hoping would be the next Star Wars (laughs) <laughs> and they sort of overestimated it. <laughs> it didn't work out. But it was, you know, there was excitement because it, it cast, it, the, there were a lot of people in the cast, I mean, mostly extras. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, who, uh, Michael Ironside was the villain. Uh, Molly Ringwald and Peter Strauss were the heroes. Ernie Hudson was in it. Okay. And it was still, uh, as I say, it was still a, a new sort of deal there was one point in the movie where they're supposed to go, they go into a cave and they're supposed to get attacked by bat people. And that's, you know, perfect for 3d because all the bat hands come out. Um, 
But of course, Vancouver didn't at that point didn't have the facilities to come up with like, you know, 50 bat costumes. So they had to send down to um, Hollywood. So and I'm always thankful that I was here. I was there for that moment. The crates (laughs) arrive. They open up the crates. There's 50 fat suits. (laughs) So you watch the movie. They go into a cave Uh and there's fat people hanging upside down. For no reason, they melted the costumes a bit to give them sort of a mutanty look. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, that is scarier. On yeah, some I think level. it probably worked out better. <laughs> <laughs> now, is this is this true that you actually had to audition three different times for Whose Line? Uh, well, they didn't I... see your genius right away. No, no, they're because they're idiots. Um, well, the f- I'm trying to think, not really, uh, well, unofficially, I kind of auditioned more than that. But here's, here's what happened. <laughs> I auditioned, um, okay. they, they were doing the Cross uh, North America tour. I was at Second City at that point. Uh, they came to see the show. They loved the show. So they decided to um, audition the entire cast the next morning at eight o'clock, which- Eight in the morning. Horrible time for comedy. <laughs> Horrible time for Second City people, because usually after a show, you're still hyped up. So you're there to like three. So we auditioned. And because we at that point, we'd been a cast for a little over a year. Everybody was doing what you're supposed to do in improv. Everybody was supportive. So nobody stood out. So none of us got it. The next year, we had moved down to L.A. because my wife had uh, created a TV show that was being produced. I auditioned with people I didn't know. Uh, So it was like, hey, screw you. Look at me. I got cast. <laughs> My first show sucked. <laughs> I did not do well. I totally sucked myself out. I got into my head. I ended up being tentative. So it didn't happen. The next year, they were filming some episodes in New York. for, And I still don't know why. But they were, they were filming like six episodes in New York. This is the British version. Right. And the British version was filming in New York or in L.A. It's weird. Yeah. I think because at that point... The show had become kind of a big hit on the comedy uh, channel at that point with university students. So they figured, I don't know what they figured. <laughs> so at that point, Ryan Stiles was part of the show. And Ryan and I had you know, worked together forever and were good friends. So he said, give Colin another try. So in a way, that was kind of my third audition. And because I was put with Ryan, I was totally comfortable. I was in you know, America, which I was also comfortable in. And so every year they would bring me back. But every year they would say, okay, we're going to have you for two episodes. So I still felt like I was auditioning because I would end up doing all of them. But they, they never, every year would go back to, okay, we're going to give you three episodes this year. And then I would do all of them. And then it wasn't until the very last year of the British one that they said, we're, you're going to do all the episodes. Hmm. Was, it, was, it a, was it a little bit easier with the, either the Drew Carey version or, or Aisha Tyler? Yeah, by that point, I was pretty much established. So I, I felt, okay. <laughs> you, I, weren't yeah. on, you weren't on episode by episode. <laughs> no, I figured at 44, I think I've proved myself to these people. I think I can relax and just have fun. Mm-hmm. Now, I know that for a while there, I don't, I don't know if they're still doing this to you, but for a mm-hmm. while, the other, the other improvisers like to gang up on you. Yeah. Was that something that you 
approved of beforehand or? No, it's just something. And you know what? You know how Americans can be. <laughs> they see it. Yeah. The lone Canadian. And let me tell you, Ryan is also, I mean, he was born in America, but he was raised in Canada. But he quickly changes depending on where the wind's blowing. So he can be Canadian one second. Um, the things they've got me on, you know, being bald, fine. Mm-hmm. Now, Wayne Brady, completely bald. Uh, Gary Anthony Williams is on the show, bald. I still get the bald jokes, even though I have more hair than all of them. Right. So and, how, do you, how do you put up with that? For me, it's just, you know what? They... They have nothing. They're, they're floundering. They feel, okay, I'll have to get an easy laugh. So, you know, I'm helping out these guys because the fact that they're still on the show, because let's face it, hacks. They're hacks. <laughs> uh, so I feel like I'm, you know, helping them keep their job. It's like, fine. Um, you will pay for it later at a later date. You won't know when. All of them have been paid back at various points. So uh, I'm fine with it. <laughs> so what has it been about Brad Sherwood that's made him be like the guy that you perform with for now 20 years? Yeah, I guess Brad is the person on the show I've known the second longest amount of time uh, because he was on the show that my wife had uh, created in uh, Los Angeles. So we would improvise at this place on uh, Santa Monica Boulevard where um, Second City alumni would go Friday nights and have a jam. So that's where I got to know him. And then, of course, during Who's Line. And during the Drew years, every Super Bowl weekend, he would take us to Vegas where we would do shows at Caesar, Caesars or MGM. And, um, and it was great. It was a lot of fun. The problem was there was like 12 of us. So there was the people on the cast and there's some friends of Drew who were there. And so we didn't get a lot of stage time. And both Brad and I are stage hogs. So Brad said, you know, I've been thinking of doing a two-man tour. You, would you be interested? So we tested it for a couple of weeks just to see what it would be like. And yeah, that was like 20 years ago. <laughs> it what? worked out. What does it take to do two-man improv? Because you have nobody else to lean on when it's just the two of you out there. Like when there's, when there's four of you or there's 12 of you, you can easily like pick your spots. But when there's two of you, yeah. it's, it's In the some two ways, it, it does lower your chances of success because <laughs> both of you have to be on top of it, or at least one of you has to be on top of it for the entire show. Um, and we've come up with... Um, ways where we have we've had the audience sort of fill in in kind of a drew role or we have them as another improviser um so we never feel like we're completely alone and you know after 20 years we kind of really feel comfortable with ourselves and we're constantly trying new games so it never gets um it never gets repetitive or uh old most of the work that goes into our show is coming up with ways where we can ask for suggestions that we get something we've never had before, which is really hard. You know, trying to find a way of getting an occupation so that you don't get gynecologist or proctologist is uh, difficult. So we're finding ways of, all right, what was the most unusual job 
someone in your family has had. So they actually use a real life situation. And from that, we got, we had one, um, the relative was someone whose job it was to answer the phone for people who are trapped in elevators. Hmm. And I didn't even know, I didn't even, I guess, of course, it would be a job, but it was something I never thought, oh, there's a cushy job. You sit <laughs> and how often does that happen? <laughs> but um, those are the jobs that every once in a while I'll read a newspaper, a book, and I'll see somebody's occupation. I think I will never get that as a suggestion. And so I try to figure out how could I word, uh, how could I word it so I could get something like that? <laughs> <laughs> so it's uh, it's still an ongoing process. Wow, it's I don't know whether to be depressed or amazed. Maybe amazingly depressed that 25 years after I was doing improv, that proctologist is still it's still and you know still when they something yell it that, out? that improv groups need to figure and out how to get yell it out when we're asking for a suggestion for sound effects. So I think really. You want like a 10 minute sound effect scene about a proctologist day at work. <laughs> what are you expecting? What does it say about them? Exactly. Yeah. It's constantly trying to um, raise, well, not raise the intelligence of the audience. I'm sure they come in intelligent, <laughs> but just like for them to play at the height of their intelligence rather than go for the joke answer or um, just the, we, we certainly try to wait, stay away from all the toilet stuff, which is amazing how often can we have a romantic place to fall in love? A toilet. You go, really? <laughs> no. A bidet, maybe. Yeah, a bidet. Make it sound French <laughs> at the very least. <laughs> uh, now, I know you've had, you've had so many TV and movie credits in Canada. Mm-hmm. Has, does it, how does it feel to be like one kind of star in Canada and then, then another kind of star in America? It's, um, it's fine. All I ever want really are free coffees every once in a while. <laughs> I'm fine with that. <laughs> um, you know, sometimes um, I think, oh, you know, I would have loved to have been in that big, you know, dramatic series that has some sort of a, final episode where they have the uh, episode before that. That's a recap of everything that's happened over the years and how the actors have grown, which whose line will never have. <laughs> I mean, let's face it. Um, but then again, I kind of have the perfect for me, just the perfect kind of life. Whose line is two weekends out of the year. So it doesn't take a lot of time. I get to travel around with either Brad or the hypnotist doing shows. Um, I get recognized um, as my, well, as myself, although they rarely get the name wrong. I've been called Colin Montgomery, Colin Farrell, Colin Firth. And in one weird instance, Colin Powell. Uh, but At least they always get the Colin right. They got the Colin right. After that, it's a crapshoot. Um, and I think I'm kind of in charge of my career. You know, when you do a movie or a TV series, you're just one part of the, the puzzle. You know, you got the director, you got the executives, you have what the editor does. 
Um, when we're on stage, we're in total control. Uh, we suck um, because we suck. We do great because we've done great. There's no one we can blame except ourselves. And I like having that pressure. I like, and when I say pressure, it's not the main pressure, but I, it's, um, I, I like being in charge of my own fate. I, I hate, I have done some things where I've gone, oh, boy, that was great. And then you see the final product and go, why did they use that take? And why are they shooting from there? And so I, I love the immediacy and I love the control. We have as much control as you can have over an improv stage show. So it's probably for the best that Space Hunter didn't spawn a sequel. I can't even imagine. I can't even imagine. I don't even know how they thought of a movie about two space bounty hunters searching for lost space models would somehow blossom into. Well, I mean, it's not too far away from Boba Fett and Baby Yoda, I guess. I guess not once you uh, dissect it, <laughs> but still quite a bit. And, you know, they've, after five minutes, I, like I saw it on the big screen, of course, because, you know, I was in it. I had, a, I had a headache from the 3D. So right. it just didn't work on so many levels. <laughs> but but improv still works for you on, on all the levels. Yeah, it's fun. It's um, I never get bored. It's always something different. We're always trying something uh, new. Every show is an opening and closing. It's a show that's no one else is going to see except for that audience. It's a show they can try to describe to someone and no one will get it because you really had to be there. Well, Colin Mockery, thank you for giving me my own unique experience. I really well, appreciate thank it. You. It was a pleasure. This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was post-produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music was by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. If you enjoyed listening, please check out my Substack called Piffany at piffany.substack.com for transcripts, bonus commentary, and expert analysis about comedy, show business, and more. I'm your host, Sean O. McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.